Welcome to another inspiring message recorded at Thrive Church, a church passionate about moving people towards Jesus. Well, hello, church. So, so good to be together today, don't you agree? And welcome back. If This is your first time since May coming back, so really is awesome. Doesn't this just feel right? You know, it just feels right that we're here together in this space. You know, and welcome to you if you're joining us online. If you are joining us online today, and if, and if you can, and if you aren't in any health risk, we would love to see you back in the building too, because there's no place like the physical, don't we all agree, <laughs> as Pastor Brian and Pastor Candace often say. And speaking of them, they are at Edenville today, kicking off our new sermon series there today. And um, next week, they'll be back to the side, kicking it off here. But for now... Today, it is my privilege to kick us off with our new sermon series on the parables of Jesus, which is called Small Stories, Big Truths. And it's going to be really awesome and really great. And for that privilege, I'd like to thank Pastor Brian and Pastor Candice in their absence for the privilege to be able to share with us today. But um, because we are in Thrive Active and because, as Cole said, we get up and we get down, would you please join me in standing <laughs> as we open up and pray today? Even if you're online as well, come on. Get your first activity for the day going. <laughs> Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that you're with us, that you love us in every single way. And we thank you, God, that we can just be gathered together under your name and under your banner. And we just thank you that you have so much to say to us and so much to share in our hearts. And we pray and we ask that we may just receive from you like never before. And we pray that your Holy Spirit's presence may just touch our lives, touch our hearts as we get into your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen. You may take your seat. Now, when I was in varsity, I was studying a English degree on education, so meaning I was majoring in English, and to, to, with the whole idea and desire to be an English teacher, either at a high school or, or a college. And then uh, that's, it was at around that point where God interjected, and I was like, yeah, other plans in mind, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> and while that was uh, taking place, you know, it was going good, going well, and I used to enjoy the practicals that I used to be in. These were like three-week stints where you teach at a school for uh, that amount of time. And then, uh, like, so all in all, it was all going well. There was just one thing that I always tried to avoid and always tried to, like, not make a part of, like, my, like, like the curriculum part that I was teaching. And that was something that it was stemmed possibly from irrational fears. I've been told I've been dramatic, so like, I'm more than willing to uh, take that on and accept it. Uh, but it was stemmed basically from a fear that started in high school and that carried on all the way to varsity. And that was a fear of public reading. I used to hate public reading. I used to fear it. I used to like make like, like heart palpitations as a start. And the reason is that I never knew if I was reading too fast or too slow. I never knew if I had the tone right or if everyone had just been bored listening to me speak. Like I just never knew. But what I did know is that every time that used to happen, it all used to play in my head. And while it's playing in my head, my brain would just short circuit and be like, Ugh. and then any word I try to read next is just non-existent. So I knew that that used to happen every single time. So to avoid that, what I used to do is just try to avoid the whole idea of public reading. And you'd think, like, I thought you were an English teacher. How do you teach English and avoid reading at the same time? It was a master class. <laughs> and speaking of which, there was one time in particular, very early on in, in, a, in a practical, where either fate would have it or God's wicked sense of humor, but I was asked by the teachers of the school to teach George Orwell's Animal Farm. 
for three weeks. And I thought to myself, like, oh, I've got two options here. The first option is that I could read the story out to these 50 or so teens that were in my classes, and I could bore the living life out of them for three weeks. That could either happen, or, or I could have option number two. And option number two was to teach them about why George Orwell wrote The Animal Farm without actually reading The Animal Farm. That's right, option number two it was. And there was teaching these poor teens, teaching these poor grade nines about why it is that George Orwell wrote The Animal Farm. They had a history lesson, a lesson on the Russian czar, on communism, on, on capitalism, just doing an economic lesson or two there as well. They got a character sketch on each animal and the real-life person that they represented as well. So the whole time, I just kept going through everything about The Animal Farm without actually opening The Animal Farm. Again, it was just a masterclass. <laughs> but uh, all the while, at the end of it all, and and my last day there, I mean, I could only do so much without actually touching the book itself. So eventually, they had to read a few pages on my last day. And while we were reading these last few pages, what was uh, beginning to be clear to them and even to me is that they had a fuller understanding of this small story. You know, this is, Animal Farm is a very small story, but it contains a lot of big truths. And here's the thing, so many times in our lives, we can be a part of, uh, we can hear stories and we can read stories, either in life or in scripture, that are so small and so short, but at the same time can contain great and big truths. And no one knew this better than Jesus. And he says this in uh, Matthew, or at least it's said of him in Matthew 13, verse 34. It says, Jesus always used stories and illustrations like these when speaking to the crowds. In fact, he never spoke to them without using such parables. Jesus knew the power of a short story. He knew the power of a parable, and he used it to his advantage every time to be able to illustrate to people the big truths that he had in store for them. So that is why over the next few weeks, we are in the series called Small Stories, Big Truths, where we're going to take a few of Jesus' small stories, and we're going to flesh them out, tease them out, and really understand the big truths that he wants us to understand from them. And yet, at the same time, I'm going to give you a disclaimer for today. My promise to you for today, my tease and tease, I'm just going to add it in there, that I will not take three weeks to tease out today's short story, that we will start and finish it today, and I think that's worth celebrating. <laughs> and uh, so to start off today, I'm going to look at a short, uh, a short and great story that Jesus told in Luke 12, verses 16 to 21, and at the same time, um, we're going to see what it is about it that is so great and also a bit chilling as well. It's chilling because what Jesus has to say in the story actually confronts our reality and confronts how it is that we live our lives. But at the same time, it's great because he paints a beautiful picture on how it is that we get to live on the back end of that. So both great and chilling, and it's found in Luke 12. And this chapter begins by Luke telling us that Jesus' ministry at this stage was in peak mode. As in like, forget 250 people in an auditorium in the middle of lockdown. Jesus' people and Jesus' crowd and audience, they were in the thousands. You know, they were, he was attracting people in the thousands. So much so that Luke says that people were stepping on each other to see Jesus. I mean, how intense is that? I mean, like, that is like the opposite of being two seats apart from everyone else. Like, that was like, ah, like, I can't believe this. And this was happening all the while. 
And there was one day in particular where Jesus was um, preaching his message and preaching about like, hypocrisy in the, in the church. He was teaching about hip, um, the fakeness of the religious, le- religious leaders of the day. And while he was saying all of this, and while everyone was like, oh, notes after notes after notes, like, oh, Jesus, like, this is amazing. There was one guy in particular, one guy in particular, who just sat there. He just was listening. And he was like thinking to himself, this Jesus guy, he's not going to be doing any miracles today, is he? No, it doesn't look like it. Nor is his message any interesting. I mean, like, who really cares about like, the fakeness of religious leaders? Like, come on now. So he decided in the thousands, remember, the thousands of people there, in the thousands, he's going to put up his hand. He's going to ask a question. Like that guy who puts up the, raises their hand in a Zoom meeting while the lecture's happening. It's like, bro, there's better times. But anyway, he puts up his hand. And he says to Jesus, yo, Jesus, Teacher, he's not doing a great job at teaching right now. But anyway, Jesus, teacher, you know, uh, your message really isn't hitting home today. And I think I speak for everyone. No? Okay. Anyway, your message isn't hitting home today. And what I wanted to say is that obviously, clearly, you're not going to be doing any miracles as well. But I have a a short out for you right now, an opportunity for you to just captivate us all in one moment. All you have to do is that, please, can you just speak to my older brother? You know, me, my dad left me and him this like, large estate uptown in Houghton. I mean, like, you should see it. It's got like the tennis courts, not courts, courts. It's got the 14 garages. I'm not sure if he's going to leave us all the cars, but that's beside the point anyway. But please, can you speak to my older brother? Because he doesn't want to divide the land. What dad said is we're going to split it 50 50, but my brother's being like a real, like, not a great guy about this, you know? And he say, so he says, so Jesus, please speak to my brother. Ask him to divide the land. And hey, you don't even have to come with me, you know, because I hear you like long, law, long walks, and I really don't want to be like, caught up in that situation right now. But anyway, uh, please can you just speak to him and just do the thing where you're just like, speaking to somebody's soul and like, you just change their hearts like that. Please, that will mean a lot and will save me a lot of time for being in the rest of this message. So that would be amazing. Thank you so much. Everyone else in the crowd, as you can imagine, because people are people, regardless of what time in history it is. So scripture doesn't tell us this, but you can kind of gather like this is what they thought. They looked at the guy and they thought, bro, you don't say it like that. Maybe you think it from time to time, but come on, you don't say it out loud like that. And you certainly don't just blurt it out loud to Jesus. I mean, just be cool. For goodness sake. Come on, you know? (laughs) But what Scripture does tell us was Jesus' response. And what Jesus says uh, to the guy, and as as off guard as you could possibly catch Jesus out, he replies this in Luke 12, verses uh, 14 to 15. He says, Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, Beware. Guard Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you have. Over and above the guy's rude question about land division, Jesus gets to the root issue that is at the heart of where this guy was at and where possibly the thousands were at and and also where we can be at sometimes from time to time in our own lives. Jesus reaches deep, stops an entire message, uh, changes the course for thousands of people in that moment to speak about the issue of greed. Because greed, uh, when I speak about it, I'm not really referring to like a a little toddler saying mine, mine every three seconds. No, what I'm speaking about is that kind of spirit, that air that we can sometimes have where we kind of think to ourselves, it should all be up 
I should look out for my own thing, and I should look out for my own thing only. It's a kind of posture that somebody can have when they can't offer help of any kind because they're weighing up what impact it will have on their safety or security. It's the kind of posture a person has when they strive for goals and they strive for the next milestone, yet having no care at all of the people that they're leaving at their wake. It's that air that somebody carries who hasn't got emotional capacity or emotional bandwidth for, to have concern or to have care for the person either side of them or anyone else in their world and in their lives. Now, I'm not guilt-tripping anyone here because it's an issue that I often struggle with. I can often hear of somebody's uh, plight that's around the corner for me and yet think to myself, I'm just going to intentionally, emotionally check out right now from the situation because I just can't handle I just can't get to that space right now. So I can often be <clears throat> greedy with my time, greedy with my energy, and even sometimes greedy with my love. It's something that God is working with me on, and I'm pretty sure he's working on it to some of us as well. But what I found very helpful is this definition on greed that Professor Manfred de Vries offers in his article. He says this in his article called Seven Signs of the Greed Syndrome. He says, greed is a characteristic that cuts across most human endeavors and goes back as long as our species has been on earth. Throughout humankind's history, greed has, been, has had a mixed press. On the one hand, it has been hailed as the motor of economic growth and human progress. On the other hand, uncontrolled greed has been seen as the cause of much misery as recent economic history has shown very dramatically. In spite of these examples, our culture continues to, play on high, uh, to place a high value on materialism and by extension, greed. Dr. Tim Keller wrote, Jesus warned about greed far more than he did about sex, and yet no one thinks they are guilty of it. And, uh, and the real problem when it comes to greed is what it does to us. Because you can be in a congregation of a thousand, you know, and just uh, putting up your hand rudely to, answer que- uh, to ask Jesus a question on land division. Or you can uh, be home alone in 2021 in complete isolation. And yet all the while the thought process will go back, the thought pattern will lead back to what's in it for me. No, it's... The saying goes, all roads lead to Rome. When it comes to greed, it's all roads lead to me. And the problem when all roads lead to me is that I cannot then have eyes and a heart to see other people. And when all roads lead to me, I cannot live the life that Jesus intended for me to live. So in response to this and answering this, Jesus going far beyond the question about land division, going far beyond anything else that anyone else was thinking in that moment, he addresses that root cause of greed, of selfish ambition, and of closed-off living by saying this parable in Luke 12, verses 16 to 21. It's the small truth, a small story that we're going to look at today and the big truth that we're going to discover as well. He says this, A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, Ah, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. If there ever was a first world problem, this is it. (laughs) Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, My friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, 
drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you work for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Now, on the outside, Jesus' words here seem very intense, very harsh, and very bitter. You know, but really, when we begin to dive in and begin to see what it is that he's saying, we begin to see that actually Jesus had no issue at all about the guy's bonds. He had no issue with his bonds and bigger bonds. He had no issue with his fertile land, his crops. He had no issue with his goods and other goods, his wheat, all of that. Jesus had no issue with that. What Jesus had an issue with was the man's greed. What Jesus had an issue with was, again, that spirit that said, I should look after my own thing and my own thing only. All roads lead to me. And what was the guy's telltale sign? What was the, 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 the one thing that we see that, that showed this guy's uh, uh, greed at full extent? It's simply his lack of human relationships. He had great material wealth, but he was so poor relationally. He had a poverty in that area of his life. Jesus had an issue that this man was so narcissistic that he referred to himself and only himself as my friend. I mean, like, who does that? Like, I know this is a fake story from, uh, that Jesus tells, a made-up story uh, about a made-up guy, but still, it's cringeworthy. I mean, like, who does that? It's like, oh, and yet still, that was the issue that Jesus had with the man. You know, he referred to himself as my friend. And Jesus had a massive issue that this man was willing to take life easy, to eat, to drink, and to be merry, and have no thought to spare at all to the person to his right or to his left. And for that, Jesus was like, you cannot go a day further like that. You need other people along the side you in this journey that is life. So Jesus makes it clear to his audience, to the rude guy, and to us, that if you're going to live this life well, you cannot, nor should you, go any further, take another step without meaningful relationships with you. We need to be able to put down greed and pick up relationships with other people that are worthwhile and worth keeping. He says to the man in the parable, you will die this very night, then who will get everything you worked for? In other words, what Jesus is asking of the man is that who are the people in your world that you've invited to enjoy each moment with? Who are the people who are sharing in your successes and are sharing in your pains? Who are the people that you've invited to get to know the real you? Because you cannot go a step further. You cannot go a day further without those people alongside you. And to you and to me, he is repeating the same narrative. Who are the people in our world, in our spheres of influence, in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces? Who are the people that we've invited to come alongside of us in the journey? Who are the people who are getting to know the real you? Who are the people in your workplace, in your church, in your life group, in your serving team that are sharing your successes and also sharing in your pains? This is so important for all of us to answer and to have in mind in our hearts and in our lives because it is unhealthy for us to go any further without those relationships in mind. You know, for me, this has been one of the gifts of 2021. 
Now, this year, 2021, it has not been the greatest of years for me, truth be told. I mean, like if we had to have the Hall of Fame of Kulu's best years, 2021 would not feature. <laughs> but, uh, but with that said, there's been some few golden gifts that God has blessed me with, and this has been one of them. Because I am just so done and so over with shallow living. I'm so over, my friend. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. Okay, I've never been that bad, but still. <laughs> so over. Just that whole atmosphere and that whole vibe. So I'm trying my best to ask myself each day, who are the people that I'm inviting? Who are the people that I'm... That I'm just pushing the boundaries with of how well they know me and how well I know them. Because if the alternative is greed, <laughs> I should, then I share Jesus' sentiment. I don't want to go another day, another step like that. So Jesus is drawing a parallel here. He's drawing a link in this parable. He's saying that you can't live a life that is greedy and closed off and that is selfish and have a rich relationship with God. <laughs> like the two just are mutually exclusive. Like they just can't work together. But at the same time, he, he starts at the end to paint this beautiful picture so subtly, but yet so powerfully. And then he just drops the mic. And I don't know if he carried on with the sermon after that. But he, like, it was worthwhile for him just to stop it here. But he paints this picture of that it is actually possible to have a rich relationship with God. It is possible to have a relationship with God that is meaningful and full of life and full of blessing and promises. And that is possible when we begin to have meaningful relationships with other people. As in when we have meaningful relationships with others, what begins to happen is that we no longer have to live lives where we wonder, oh, I wonder if I'm on the same page with God. But we actually know it's guaranteed, it's an end result that a rich relationship with God will take place. And that's the beautiful promise that Jesus offers. He, he, that's what he encourages us to live in. So meaning that without meaningful relationships, what begins to happen, like the guy in the story, we begin to store up and use love unused words of encouragement, unused uh, um, uh, comfort, unused empathy, unused uh, words of affirmation. And we begin to look back at the end of our lives and we begin to think to ourselves, my friend, I should have invited more people along with me on the journey. But what Jesus encourages us with is that when we do have those relationships, when we do have those rich relationships, with, uh, meaningful relationships with other people, where we, they start by us setting up a coffee with them, by hosting them over a dinner, where we're preparing a care package and then delivering it to them, where we linger in a conversation a bit longer to allow a conversation about the weather to become a meaningful conversation about the heart, things of the heart. When we begin to live lives like that, the natural end result is a rich relationship with God, the type that Jesus spoke about and the type he enjoyed himself. That will always happen when we do that. So our main takeaway from today, our big truth from Jesus' small story of how it is that we can fight off the hints of greed and have meaningful relationships, our big takeaway from today is this. Live an invitational life. Live an invitational life. As in, live a life where you are known by others and where they get to know you. Live a life where you know and are being known. When we begin to live lives like that, that's, that's, on the other side of that, greed can't be there, but a rich relationship with God can. 
And it's what Paul encourages the church in Corinth to do uh, in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 11 to 13, when he says this. It won't be on the screens, but just listen to his heart. He says, my friends at Corinth, our hearts are wide open to you and we speak freely, holding nothing back from you. So make room in your hearts for us as we have made room in our hearts for you. To be known and to know. Know and be known. And we do this best when we live an invitational life. An invitational life. Steve Carter describes this so well in his book, This Invitational Life. He says this, More than 7 billion people inhabit the earth today. Millions, if not billions, of them are lonely and longing to belong. They yearn for meaningful connection with others. They want to love and be loved, and they want their lives to matter. They long for an invitation to be a part of something significant. And this lifelong journey that we're on of being more like Jesus, where we become like him, and we, well, we be with him, become like him, and we do what, we, what he did, this lifelong journey that we're on, that is something significant. So we're already just like one step there already, so you can pat yourself on the back if you like. <laughs> but all we need to do from here on in is just simply invite people into that space. Invite people into the spaces where you're practicing your faith. Because when you do that, you're living invitationally, and what you're doing is that you're beginning to invite them into something bigger than themselves and something bigger than ourselves and, and something where our faith is put into practice. So meaning that if you're a parent, you can invite your kids into something significant by sharing with them what you're praying for, by sharing with them the things and the types of heart passions that you pray for. If you're a leader in any area of life, you can invite people into something significant by serving them and their families and using your influence in that way. And if you're a boss, by asking your employees how their lives are really going. And as Christ followers, we can invite people who are struggling, um, or, or sorry, who are less fortunate, we can invite them into something significant by us just being generous with our resources. And we can also invite others who are new to faith or far from Christ into something significant by opening up our homes to host a life group or by joining a serving team or by using our God-given gifts in that way. By inviting somebody to a, a serving team, we can also be doing this or just inviting them to a life group. We're inviting them ultimately into something significant. And you can also invite somebody to something significant by just inviting them in what you routinely do anyway into your weekly life anyway. As in, when was the last time you invited somebody over for dinner? Or to your gym? Or even the last time you asked somebody to walk a journey with you over something that you're struggling to overcome? All of these are very practical ways on how it is that we can live inviting others. How it is that we can invite others and allow them to know us as we get to know them. And ultimately, what we begin to do and we begin to see is that this is the way Jesus lived. He often lived in this space. I mean, if, we, if our vision, as it has always been and always will be, if our vision is to be with Jesus, become like Jesus and do what he did, he, what he did was live an invitational life. He invited Philip and Nathaniel when he, he first joined them to be his disciples. He invited Matthew when Matthew was still wretched and being a tax collector. You know, it's so much so that when Matthew said, please come over to my house for dinner, it's like, yeah, cool, sure. Everyone else, all the, the Pharisees who weren't so invitational, they were like, whoa, whoa, 
Like, what's this guy doing? But yet, that's what Jesus did. And then, <laughs> this blows my mind every time I think about it. But Jesus was so passionate about living an invitational life that when he saw Zacchaeus, he asked Zacchaeus to come down from the tree and he asked Zacchaeus if he could come to Zacchaeus' home for dinner. Jesus invited himself into somebody's home. That is how much he loves an invitational life. That he's like, well, it doesn't matter where I am, it's just going to happen anyway. It's like Zacchaeus is there, he's like, ah, like I didn't do the dishes, but like Jesus is coming anyway. <laughs> that's how passionate he is about living an invitational life. And that's the kind of uh, spirit and the kind of life that he wants us to have as well. So let's also have that kind of life. Let's also live invitational lives to that extent as well, where we know others and are being known and where we just invite anyone that we see along us on the journey to something significant. So the question is, how do we do this well? As in, how do we send out an invitation well and knowing that it will be well received? As in, how do you know that when you ask somebody over for dinner, they're not assuming that you're going to be patronizing? How do you know that when you just genuinely just want to ask somebody a question, you just want to get deeper with them? You know, you have to ask them the deeper question of life. You know, just, like, I'm just going to get off surface level. I just want to ask you a deeper question. How do you know that when you ask that, they don't feel like they're being interrogated? They're like, ah, like, why is there a spotlight on me and like a polygraph test? Like, why? <laughs> no, how do we know that our invitations will be received well? I remember Amy and I going to London the one time and we were in a restaurant, a, a, a French restaurant, and, and the, as we were about to like, take our first step into the restaurant, we saw like, the manager like, looking at us and like, staring us down. And we were like, can we come in? And she looked at us up and down and she said, yeah. We thought, okay, okay, we've been invited, but clearly not well, you know? And so how is it that we can avoid every invitation that we send to be received um, badly and for us to know that it can be received well. For me personally, that's often a question I'll ask because uh, it's my biggest barrier as well. Like I, I hardly or sometimes just not say or give out an invitation because I fear that this thing is going to be received well and not be received well. So how is it that we can know for sure that any invitation we ask and we share will be received well? And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul offers this amazing uh, example, this amazing principle and how it is that we can know for sure that every time we send out an invitation, it will be received with a yes. You know, he says this in these all classic lo uh, love passage in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 to 7, where he basically says, just love others. Just love others. If you love others, you'll be living a life that is so open and so expansive that they will no have no other way but to just receive you well. So when we begin to love others, that's what begins to happen. So we're going to read from this passage that we probably know from every wedding that we've ever been to. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7, and even though we may have heard it in every wedding and, you, uh, and like ever since, like since the day that you said it to your spouse, and ever since that day, you may have had a touch-and-go relationship with it, like from the honeymoon period. That's like a whole other sermon series altogether. But uh, this verse on its own is actually quite powerful, and especially when we look at it in the context of, of living an invitational life well. So Paul says this, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. In other words, when we are people who are patient and listen to others when they speak, offer up a kind word or a kind gesture, 
And when we choose not to boast like people who are greedy and for the limelight, when we resist the urge to assert dominance in any area, when we choose not to uh, shoot out a, a, a rude remark that interrupts Jesus in the sermon, you know, when we choose to live lives like this, what begins to happen is that we begin to be a lot more approachable. People are just drawn to us more naturally, and they just want to lean in just a little bit closer to what we have to say. And he carries on by, by saying, it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Think about it. Just think about the types of people that you kind of keep an arm's length away from. It's the kinds of people who just, are, they, they just always want to push their own agenda on you. The kind of people who are always just like, you don't know what you're going to get from them if they're going to be irritable in one moment and the next moment they'll be like your best friend. Like you want to like just keep away like uh, slightly. But what Paul is saying is that the opposite is also true. You know, because we kind of gatecrash the lives of the people who, who are open to us. We gatecrash the lives of people who just want to hear our opinions, who want to hear our thoughts, and want to hear where we're at in life, and who are always approachable. You know, we just fall in love with those types of people. And that's the way of love. Love invites people in that way. And then he ends this passage, which uh, so beautifully, which we probably all know so well because of the, every reading that we've ever attended to ever in our lives. <laughs> he ends it so well by saying, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In other words, what love does is that it has the other person in mind, and it is optimistic, and it's believing the best in other people. And when we live invitational lives, we have that same kind of spirit as well. We are loving, and we are inviting, and we are believing the best in all people all the time. And that's an invitational life. So can I encourage us in the weeks and months to come as we begin to live more invitational lives, can I encourage us to be the kinds of people, the types of people who just have this verse committed to memory. We have 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 7, committed to memory. Like committed to memory as if you, you, you auditioning for like a movie or something, auditioning for the opening act for like the next Netflix series that's going to be the biggest hit, you know? Like you want to get that right, you know? You want to be like, oh, okay, vocal calls ready, face and check. Okay, 1 Corinthians 13 verses 47, it's like we're able to rattle it off like that. No, committed to memory like that because what we will begin to see is that what it actually is is that this scripture can become the opening act of our lives as well. People, when they just see us, will begin to see kindness, patience, no boasting, no, no envy, no, no, no maliciousness, no irritableness. What they'll begin to see is that they'll begin to see us and begin to see us full of love and full of compassion, full of heart and full of love. And when they begin to see that, any, RSV, any invitation that we send out will be, will be RSVP to with a resounding yes, of course. Hey, do you want to come over for dinner so that we can just speak about how your marriage is going? Yes. Do you want to go over for a cup of coffee like just to speak about how you're doing in life? Yes. Do you want to join me in church or, to my life, or join my life group? Because I know that things aren't going so well for you, but I'd love to have you come a part of it as well. Yes. Yes. The answer is always Yes when we live invitational lives with love. So can I encourage us to live our lives like that?
So to recap today, and as we end off and close off, if, you're not caref- if we're not careful, all of us, greed can grip our lives and making us self-absorbed. Jesus knew this well, and he told a story of what it looks like when a man or when um, greed has its full extent in our lives. But he ends it also with a beautiful picture that we are able to have a rich relationship with God when we have meaningful relationships with other people. And we have these meaningful relationships when we live invitational lives, where we allow love to lead the way. And when we invite others into something significant. And when we have love leading the way, the 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love, our lives begin to take on a different shape because they will have a rich relationship with God. So as we just close off today, I'd just like to share one last thought on an invitation. And it's something that, uh, that I so impacted me a few years ago and just continues to resonate in my life and in my heart. And that is the quality of an invitation says a lot about the event that you're being invited to. The quality of the invitation says a lot about the event you're being invited to. Take, for example, this invitation that uh, I received to a cousin's wedding quite a while ago. You know, it's like as a three-part invitation. I mean, like, first, you've got the class, like the, like the cool font and everything like that. You know, you can, like, read it either way. And like, oh, I'm invited, you know. <laughs> and then, then you have this um, uh, one, uh, one uh, sheet that just has such great uh, colors and, and color and, 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 again, the fonts and stuff. And, again, on, on this um, page as well. All, all around, all the elements of this invitation, it says a lot about the, about the wedding that we're being invited to. Like when you look at this, you don't just assume that the, this wedding is just going to be like something that got put together yesterday and, you, and you're attending today. What you begin to see from this invitation is that it actually says a lot about the invitation, about the event that you're being invited to. And I remember this just hitting home a few years ago when I was asked and tasked to hand out invitations to a few of our family members just uh, moments before our wedding. In fact, let me say months before our wedding in case I get into trouble. Like, I know it's been years later, but yeah, this stuff matters. <laughs> uh, so like, I remember being asked to hand out invitations to friends of ours who live in the, uh, or family members of mine who live in the Northwest. And I remember waking up one Saturday morning, putting in my playlist, uh, putting in the GPS coordinates on Google and crying because the distance was so far. And then I got in my car and went on the way to go there. And while everything was going good until it was four minutes away, I looked to my left, looked to my right. There were houses on either side, which is all good. But when it was one minute away, what began to happen is that there were no houses anymore. And the nearest house looked like 10 minutes away. And I thought to myself, like, oh, no, this is not going to end well. And what began to happen was that uh, within, uh, again, like a minute left to go, and I began to dread those five words that you don't want to hear when you're stuck in the middle of a scrapyard. You have reached your destination. And I began to panic and, like, and say to the ever-polite Google lady, no, I have not. I have not reached my destination. And I began to panic. And in that moment, I had a choice. I had a choice. I could either ask my family member for a new address, or I could ask her to just simply, uh, or sorry, I could just text her all the information that's on the invitation and just basically ask her to see her and her husband at the wedding. Like, cool. But then while I was thinking this, I thought, no, this invitation cannot be reduced to that. This invitation and all of it cannot be reduced to a simple text. The invitation in my hand had to reach her heart as well. 
but it had to reach her hands as well. And so what I began to do is I asked her for another dress, and after more drama, he eventually got the invitation to her hand. And she began to see it herself. And the whole time, I was so grateful because the invitation in my hand was able to reach her hand as well. And the same is true when it comes to our lives and our relationship with Christ. The invitation that we have in our hearts, it has to reach the other person that we see because it says a lot about the kind of life that they get to live one day in eternity. And it says a lot about the kind of life that Jesus offers us today, a life of peace and of purpose and of him just uh, being our friend all the time, every day. So when we begin to live lives with an invitation in our hearts, what we begin to do and what we begin to see is that we begin to offer up an invitation that is so life-giving and so worthwhile for every single person who we come into contact with. We begin to have often invitation for those who are far from Christ, from those who, have broken and who are broken and hurting and who need to know that there's hope beyond this current moment. We begin to offer an invitation for, to those people who need to know that far beyond anything else, there's hope in this life because of who Jesus is. There's hope because of church, because of life group, because of everything else that happens in the life of our, of our, in our lives, all because of the invitation in our hearts being extended over to them. And when we live like this, we're doing nothing more than just following Jesus' example. Because Jesus says himself in Revelation 3 verse 20, Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. This is hands down the best invitation that we've ever been offered. Because it's an invitation that what Jesus spoke of that says a lot about the event that is to come. An eternity with God and life in the present where Jesus is our friend. So as a way of responding with all of our eyes closed and all of our heads bowed, can I encourage us to accept this invitation, especially if you've never received this invitation before and you've never known that it's been offered to you. Can I encourage you to accept it? I'm going to count to three, and once I've done so, you can just slip up your hand. It's just a way for me to know who I'm praying for and a way for you to know that you've accepted this invitation for yourself. So both in the building and online, if you want to accept this invitation at the count of three, just slip up your hand. Come all together. One, two, three. Awesome. Thank you. I see your hand. I see your hands at the back as well. So awesome. Thank you. At the back as well. Thank you. So great. Come church, just pray together in this moment. Let's be the church in this moment for all of those uh, who, received, who received Jesus to be the Lord and Savior today. I'm going to pray. and You can just agree with me in this prayer. And if you are praying this prayer for the first time, just receive it in your heart. Let it be language for what's going on in your heart. Come, let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you're with us today. You're with us in this moment. We thank you, Lord, that you love us, you care for us. And thank you, God, that you are with me right now, helping me to accept this invitation. Please forgive me for my sins. But most importantly, please, Lord, help me to receive you as my Lord, my Savior, and my friend. Because I want to live life for you and with you from now on. So I accept this invitation in your mighty and powerful name. Amen. Amen. Come on, churches. Raise our voices and let's give a huge clap for everyone who received the invitation today. We hope you have been blessed and helped by this message. For more information about our church, visit our website at www.thrivechurch.co.za.